searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. Welcome back, everybody, to the Pitch Please podcast. Mike Thibodeau here, and today I'm joined by Matthew Lombardi, the Managing Director from 111. I'm excited to talk about our topic today. We're going to be talking about navigating the VC ecosystem with a double-click specifically on the Canadian market founders out here up north in Canada. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Mike. Excited to be here. Now, I introduced you as the Managing Director of 111. Maybe give us a quick background on what 111 is, but while you're going through it, I couldn't help but notice your impressive background of things that have brought you to where you are today. So maybe touch on a bit of those experiences and how they got you into your current role as Managing Director at 111. Sure. So 111, for those who don't know us, we are a 55,000 square foot accelerator for venture-backed Canadian startups. We're located in the middle of downtown Toronto at the corner of Front and Blue Jay. And we have a portfolio of 40 venture-backed Canadian-founded software companies who are members of 111. And they have collectively raised over $800 million in follow-on funding, most of which is venture-backed. So a really exciting group of, you know, the, the next Canadian Shopify's, as it were. Some of our alumni include some companies that, that a lot of your listeners will be familiar with, companies like Wealthsimple, Maple, Coho, Borrowwell. So 111 is really at the center of the Canadian tech ecosystem. It's a really exciting space. And I know you and, you and your team, Mike, have been there. And, you know, we're, we're always excited to, to have different folks who are looking to learn about the ecosystem roll through and see what we can do to help support them in the, on their entrepreneur's journey as well. Those are definitely some impressive names and inspiration to all other Canadian builders and founders and innovators. So I'm glad to see that they haven't fallen from too, clo- too far from home, just around the corner of Blue Jay Way, close to an area that we're always around and that you are helping inspire and, and prop up so many more of them. So maybe talk about you know that background of yours and how you even got to the role of a managing director and why we're even you know credibly able to go talk about the VC space or venture capital space today. Yeah, so I mean it 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 was sort of by accident. You know, 111 has been around since 2013 and at the beginning of COVID, this was before my involvement with 111, or, or, you know, I think we were, so 111, uh, unfortunately, shut down due to COVID permanently, or or it was supposed to be permanently in in April of 2020. And its closure sort of fell a little bit under the radar, because if you recall those early days of COVID, you know, March, April 2020, you know, you were reading a a news story seemingly every hour about some institution that, that was shutting its doors due to COVID. And so at that time, I wasn't involved in in either 111 or in the tech space at all. I was a management consultant at Deloitte. I was very happily ensconced there. And a funny thing happened. I, I got a call from my next door neighbor who was a medical, who is a medical worker. He's a he's an emergency room doctor. And he says, and he says to me at around around the third week of March, he says, you know, I can't get a, I can't get groceries. And I said, Well, what do you mean you can't get groceries? He said, Well, 
all the grocery delivery services are oversubscribed and, you know, Instacart has a two week wait. And, and at the time, you know, you have to put yourself in that mind, in that mind frame, like March of 2020, April of 2020, even really into the summer, we just didn't know anything about COVID, right? If you recall, this was a time when people were wiping down their groceries with Lysol wipes. This was before masks were even recommended to a large degree. This was before the vaccine, the vaccine rollout. And so nobody really knew how COVID spread. And so I said to my doctor friend, well, why don't you just go to the grocery store like everybody else? And he says, no, you don't understand. He says, I'm working 14 hour or 16 hour shifts in the hospital because it's all hands on deck. And I don't want to walk out of the hospital and risk walking into a public place like a grocery store and infecting others. So he couldn't get a delivery, didn't want to walk into a grocery store. And so I said, okay, I, I think I can help you solve this problem. So, so I phoned my brother and my brother at the time was the market manager for Canada for Instacart. And Instacart at that time had Toronto as its first city outside of the US. And... I said to my brother, look, my, my neighbor who's a doctor is having this problem. Can you help solve it? And he said, you know, we absolutely can. He's like, it's sensible. We can validate medical workers. We bump them to the front of the line. No big deal. You know, it's, it's a win for public health. It's a win for Instacart. The next day, my brother called me back and he says, well, you know, we can't really do it. And he, and, you know, eventually I surmised that it's not that Instacart couldn't do it. It's that they wouldn't do it because it wasn't worth it for them to build this custom solution that was only relevant to Toronto. It wasn't relevant to any of their American markets where they were a much more developed and sophisticated service and they didn't have these delivery backlogs. And so I took, I took that as a cue that, you know, time of crisis, someone's got to solve this. So me and four of my friends, all of whom were working with me at Deloitte at the time, decided that we'd solve it on our own. So we started our own startup. Uh, we called it Grocery Hero. It was a not-for-profit marketplace. The concept was, you know, if you, Mike Thibodeau, you know, live in Red Deer, Alberta, let's say, and, and you know, you've got a vehicle and you sign up, you tell us your postal code, we will match you with the nearest frontline medical worker who needs a grocery delivery within 24 hours. And the concept Mike took off like wildfire. We ended up matching 8,000 pairs of medical workers coast to coast with a neighbor wow. who wanted to help them get a grocery delivery. And, you know, I, I sort of never looked back. You know, we ran Grocery Hero for about eight months up until the grocery delivery services caught up. And then we were very happy to, to, to just shut it down and thank all the volunteers who helped sort of patch that hole in the grocery delivery space for medical workers. But for me, the takeaway was, you know, when, when, when in times of crisis, you need a good homegrown ecosystem of local companies who understand your local needs. And so Around August of 2020, so several months after 111 had shut down and right around the time that, you know, Grocery Hero was sort of hitting its peak and then we saw the volume decline as grocery delivery services caught up, thankfully, someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, I don't know if you heard, but 111 shut down early in COVID. And, you know, if you're really interested in what you say you're interested in, you know, sort of put your money where your mouth is, you know, 111 as a piece of infrastructure its mandate has always been exactly what you're talking about. That is helping great Canadian companies scale to meet our local problems. And so the rest is kind of history, but that, that, that is how I, how I ended up going from management consultant with no particular tech background to managing director of 111. I was lucky enough to be tapped on the shoulder and, and given the responsibility of leading 111's reboot to where it is today. 
That's amazing. And I love that there's so many similarities that, you know, we, we work together and I had no idea you share even just before the mission of what 111 does, but that same passion for shining a spotlight on the Canadian ecosystem, because while there's so much amazing opportunity and, you know, addressable market just south of the border in the United States, sometimes because of where the Canadian market sits, there's a lot of differences. And I know we'll talk about some of that today. And I think it's as a Canadian ourselves, it's it's sort of nice to put a spotlight on that and try to help the ecosystem here grow. Let's talk about venture capital. You said 111 is for venture backed startups. So maybe we just dive into like, what is venture capital and what is a VC and how does that differ from the other types of, of funding that startups might receive in this space? Sure, absolutely. So maybe I'll just go up 30,000 feet because at a high level, I think people are familiar with, I think the HBO show Silicon Valley, or they might be familiar with what they're reading in the newspaper about SoftBank and Mayoshi Sun and and all the the very glamorous parts of VC when you read about a $100 million funding round. But I just, I want to go up 30,000 feet and just make sure that your listeners kind of understand what is venture capital as an asset class. So Fundamentally, VC is a, is a form of private equity, right? It's a type of financing where investors will provide very early stage companies, usually companies that don't necessarily yet have product market fit or don't necessarily have sales, especially at the earlier stage rounds. They think those companies have long-term growth potential, right? So, oh, so venture capital is basically structured around well-off investors will pool money, and these well-off investors are, are called LPs, limited partners. They'll pool money in what's called a venture fund, and that fund will be deployed by the general partners of that fund, the people who manage and administrate it and make investment choices on behalf of their LP investors, and they will allocate money to companies that they believe have exceptional growth potential. Now, generally, VC as an asset class is considered a riskier asset class for this very reason. Now, high risk, high reward, because it's a riskier asset class, because it's investing in businesses that have a lot less traction and a lot less metrics than a normal investable business, they're looking for a higher return, right? And so VCs are looking for typically, call it two to three times the risk-free rate of return as an asset class. So Oftentimes, VC is going to be allocated, especially earlier stage VC, to companies that are very small and, again, not necessarily companies with sales traction yet. But the fundamental thing that ties it all together is venture capital is deployed to companies that VCs believe have exceptional growth potential. Not just growth potential of doubling or tripling, but exceptional growth potential. Generally, Venture capital, because it's a riskier asset class in, this, in the sense that it's investing in companies with less, uh, less traction than a normal investable business, because it's a riskier asset class, higher risk demands higher reward. So venture capital generally aims to return two to three times what the market will call the risk-free rate of return. Got it. So if I'm talking about a risk-free rate of return, maybe let's start there. Is that like so risk-free rate, seed, very simple. Seed, bank, yeah. Like where does that fit in? And then where does VC, like how should someone think about, hey, I'm ready to start pitching a VC is probably the thing most people are thinking in their heads. 
Sure. Well, key characteristic. So, so risk-free rate. When I say risk-free rate, you know, what is a two-year U.S. Treasury bill yield right now? Probably somewhere a shade under five percent. So that is considered the risk-free rate. So if I want my money to sit in the market, right? If I'm a wealthy investor who 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 would otherwise consider being a limited partner in a venture fund, right, providing capital to that fund. If I want my money to appreciate at a risk-free rate to track inflation, as it were, and, and to not be eaten away at, I would put it in a U.S. Treasury bill, right? Or in Canada, you might put it in, in a GIC, a guaranteed, a guaranteed income product that the big banks offer. But people who are wanting to invest in venture capital as an asset class are looking for two to three times that risk-free rate. And so in order to get two to three times that risk-free rate, they're investing in riskier assets. In this case, startup companies, small businesses that don't necessarily have the proven traction to go out and get capital from a regular bank loan or other types of finance. Got it. And are venture capital venture capitalists are they generally investing? You know, you talked about they might not have customers or revenue or product market fit. So do they invest in ideas or do things need to be a little bit further along? Like when do they usually jump in and when do people need to turn to other sources of funding first in sure. this journey so, around venture capital? Can, sure. So you, I think you can segment venture capital as an asset class by stage of growth. So generally at the ideation stage of a company, you know, if a company is raising in and around a quarter million dollars, let's say, right, you might be looking at you know, bootstrapping that, being self-funded, taking on money from family and friends. I like to call it FFF, family, friends, and fools. But, you know, right around that ideation precede stage, around a quarter million, maybe even up to a million dollars, that's the first sort of stage of venture capital where, you you know, you don't necessarily have much beyond an idea. You have an early minimum viable product and you're looking for the riskiest possible capital and and the smallest amount on the on the investment stage of typical VC. Now, when you read in the news about you know larger venture capital growth equity investors, you know organizations that are maybe a bit more famous, like a SoftBank, right? Usually they're looking at Series B and Series C deals. So it goes. Pre-seed, seed, Series A, Series B, Series C. And those Series C deals are usually in excess of tens of millions of dollars. Those are the big ones from institutional VCs and growth equity and growth VCs that you read about in the news. But at a much earlier stage, you're investing in companies with a lot less traction at smaller amounts. But again, the thing that ties it all together is these are investors who are seeking above average returns, returns above the risk-free rate. And so they're willing to invest in riskier businesses. Got it. So they need multiples of return. If your business is going to drive revenue and be a steady growing company, it's amazing, but it might not be what's right for venture capital investment is what you're saying. Absolutely. So look, the key characteristic of venture capital is that returns are based on what's called a power law distribution. So the basic math component here is that, you know, of all the startups that receive venture capital, about about 95% of them, if not more, right? Excuse me, 0.04% are going to drive 95% of the value for a given VC fund. Think about that. So what that means fundamentally is that venture capital is not a home run business. Venture capital is a grand slam business. Venture capital means that as a fund, 
a fund is intending to invest in in you know a wide array of very risky businesses. And again, as we said at the beginning, high risk, high reward. So the vast majority of those businesses will never generate a return, but the one that does, right? That 0.04%, that's going to drive 95% of the returns for the fund in that power law distribution. So it's it's a for lack of a better term, a spray and pray approach. Now, spray, spray and pray within a thesis, right? Every fund has an investing thesis. Are they looking at a certain type of company, enterprise SaaS, et cetera? But it's a spray and pray approach within the band of companies that are risky enough, but high potential enough to have just one of them generate that Facebook level or that Google level return for the fund. So to your question, Mike, just to skip back to actually answering it, if that's the imperative and how a venture capital fund is structured in a high risk, high reward manner, it's absolutely true what you've asked, which is, is venture capital right for every business? Absolutely not. Right? I, say to, I say to folks who are interested in entrepreneurship all the time, if your goal is to build a business where you personally get, as a founder, a $10 million exit, if a $10 million exit is going to make you happy, then you are by definition not a venture backable business because if you back out the math on that for a founder to exit with 10 million dollars which again no, no not knocking that that's an extraordinary amount of money for almost everyone but for a founder to exit with 10 million dollars you back out the math on that and that by definition has not generated the return that the fund itself would need to make it an investable business right Venture capital is, again, it's a grand slam business. They're looking for billion dollar potential companies, not hundred million dollar potential companies. That makes a lot of sense. And so when you were talking about, you know, you mentioned ideation, seed, series A, B, C, are these like fixed numbers that are generally similar across markets, Canada, US, and elsewhere that make you, you know, ideation, pre-seed, seed, or are there like general rules of thumb as you go through these stages? So so I, I'll speak to the Canadian market. So ideation, you're looking at something under 250K. Pre-seed, call it 250K to about a million dollars. And that's, that's generally where VCs get involved or do they get involved at ideation as well? Just so I can kind of like map that out mentally. Yeah, so I think VCs of the institutional variety Formal funds like a, a Panache Ventures, let's say, they'll get involved at pre-seed. At the ideation stage, you're really looking at friends and family, angel, individual angel investors. Then pre-seed, you're looking at, at institutional VCs like a Panache Ventures. That's the 250K to a million. The next round of seed, a million to three or four million, call it. You're looking at investors like Golden Ventures, investors like Version 1. And then you look at you start to look at the Series A, larger size institutional VCs like an Anovia Capital. That's that's around five million to somewhere around ten million, and then so on and so forth. Got it. And so generally, when venture capitalists are investing, and you know you talked about the ten million dollar cash out for a founder, generally they're looking for companies. When you're saying you know they want the billion dollar valuations, they are really looking for people that are that are striving for IPO or some massive significant acquisition. Absolutely. And 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 I and I tell people all the time, it is okay if you just want your 10 million dollar exit and it is okay if uh, you know, 
Jim Balsilli calls this the Muskoka home run, right? Jim Balsilli, founder of BlackBerry, who, who built you know, a globally dominant company out of Canada. He calls it the Muskoka home run. He says that you know, there are too many entrepreneurs who only want the $10 million exit so that they can buy a cottage in cottage country and they'll be happy with it. Now, I, I think that's okay uh, if you want to do that. But if you want to do that, you just have to know that you're not building a venture-backable business. What you're building is a lifestyle business it's going to be, you know, in the grand scheme of financing, it's going to be a small business. It's going to be interesting to a certain class of investors, but not venture capital investors. Got it. So it's a different type of investment if you're looking to build a lifestyle business or a business that still could make millions and have a decent valuation, but it's not that billion dollar. Absolutely. Um, it, it can make a few million dollars, and, but, it, but it won't make enough money to justify venture capital investment under, again, this power law distribution, right? High risk demands extraordinary rewards. Makes, makes so much sense. Now, when you were talking about the venture capital firm's thesis, I think you referred to it as, what is the thesis? Is that related to industry? Is it like what they're looking for? Is it the types of companies, a mix of all of that? Can you explain like the thesis? Because I imagine that has some effect on when startups and entrepreneurs are looking to match themselves with a venture capital fund. I assume that has something to do with the thesis of those venture firms that they might want to match with, right? Absolutely. So venture capital, you can, you can generally plot venture capital uh, funding sources on a two by two, and that two by two would look look at two factors: stage of growth. So certain funds only invest in pre-seed. Other funds like to invest between Series A through Series B, so on and so forth. So stage of growth. And the other piece of that two by two is industry vertical. So there are funds that only invest in fintech companies. There are funds that only invest in B2B companies. There are funds that only invest in enterprise SaaS, so on and so forth. A fund is generally going to have a thesis based on both stage of scale, where they believe they can add the most value, and what type of company is actually being built. Because again, funds want to add value in ways such as there's a GP there who's a former operator who really understands and is an expert in call it fintech. And so they want to invest in fintech companies because one, that's what they understand and where they can add value. And two, that's where they can actually lean in with the founders to both compete for deals and also help them grow the business once, once they've actually made an investment. Got it. So they have obviously, depending on the background of the people's money that the fund makes up and the experiences there, they may have multiple industries or multiple things that they're looking for. So it is probably super important to read up. I imagine they publish their thesis. Absolutely. Of how they invest. And that is an important thing to be mindful of as a, as a founder pitching for venture funding. Absolutely. Every venture fund is extremely clear on what they look for at a high level. And they do deploy a network of associates and fund scouts all over the country at things like pitch competitions. I know you and I were at one together just, just last week, Mike, where, where we met about 30 high potential startups founded by smart, smart young folks over at the Microsoft office. And you know that room is also filled with scouts on behalf of different venture funds. It's a little bit of research on the, on the founder side, but it's also, it's also incumbent upon these funds, right? They're out there competing for deals, trying to find alpha, trying to find the best deal. 
And so they're out there actively seeking out the next great idea. And they're also going to help help coach entrepreneurs to, to become investment ready in many cases. In your opinion, are there questions that founders and entrepreneurs should also be asking to venture funders or angel investors when they're looking for things? Because it, it shouldn't just be about the money if you're doing it right, correct? Uh, absolutely. One, you want to understand you know, what what the fund is going to bring once they're on your cap table, right? So the cap table is very simply, you know, I take money. So, so say I, I, I run a company, you, Mike Thibodeau, want to be an investor, want to provide venture capital to, to my company. We come to an, an arrangement on a safe or a convertible note or whatever instrument you're investing in. Now you're on my cap table, meaning you, you have a stake in, in the company. I want to know from you is a couple of things. One, what are you actually looking for as a return? And there are very specific growth metrics that, that we'd have to talk about in terms of what are your expectations? I'm probably already thinking about a follow-on round, right? What's the next round that I want to raise? Are you going to want to participate in that? What other sources of capital can you help bring to the table? How are you going to help us meet our growth targets, whether that be through marketing support, sales support, growth coaching. There's a gamut of what's called platform services that VCs offer to their portfolio companies to compete for deals and show that they're the best value-added investor. And, and, I'm, and you know, most importantly, I'm going to want to understand uh, you know, how you're going to be a partner in, in my growth. And so you, know, you can't be prescriptive on that. Again, every venture capital fund is fiercely competitive, right? These are organizations seeking you know, the biggest returns in the world. And so they're fiercely competitive on the ways in which they believe that they can offer value and, and the resources that they'll bring in, the expertise they'll bring to the table for their portfolio companies. So really, it's understanding fundamentally, how are you going to help me grow if, if you're on my cap table? And everything is sort of a, a sub bullet from that question. Got it. And those elements that you are talking about, is it worth explaining those maybe for people that are newer to the concepts of venture backed? And so you talked about, you know, basically the exchange of what a venture fund or any investor gets in exchange for their money in. So there's some expectation around evaluation or return and they take things like convertible notes. Can you talk about those examples of how that works and generally how much money or percentages and how, how that sort of the frameworks that are used for investors and startups? Sure. So, so at a really high level, you know, there's something called a SAFE. So a SAFE stands for, and it's an acronym, Simple Agreement for Future Equity. And this was introduced by Y Combinator almost a decade ago. Um, now, prior to the SAFE, startups would raise funds using simple equity rounds. So a, a priced round, which has the advantage of, you know, very certain terms. And, and the other instrument that startups would use to raise funds were called convertible notes. So, the, so that's sort of, you know, yeah, you're, you're, dis, you're agreeing that with a convertible note, you will quite literally convert in terms of valuation and terms at a future date. So they were a form of debt, and, and that comes with its, with its own sort of risks and drawbacks. The goal of the SAFE, the, again, Simple Agreement for Future Equity, which is now the industry standard in, in, in early venture capital, that was, again, introduced at Y Combinator about a decade ago was basically standardized fundraising documents for early stage startups in a way that reduces overall cost and, again, really simplifies it. Clarity for both the founders, 
and, and, and the venture providers, the capital providers in terms of scenarios likely to occur. And that's, that's basically the, the most standard instrument for raising funds for, for an early stage company. Now, again, when, when you read about the, you know, the soft bank, $100 million rounds, those are not done by safes. Those are equity rounds that are done, again, with companies that are a little bit later stage. They have product market fit. They have sales traction, so on and so forth, right? But the safe is for generally for early financing rounds and, and, and generally for the seed financing rounds specifically. And the safe is, again, you know, the most standard tool that almost all startups are raising with right now. Got it. So safe, standard agreement, simple agreement for future equity. Absolutely. Simple agreement for, for future equity. So an investment contract between the startup and the investor, and it just gives the investor the right to receive equity of the company on certain triggering events, such as you know a future equity financing that's led by an institutional VC or a sale of the company, so on and so forth. Gotcha. Now, speaking of events, you know we're here breaking our way into 2023. We started the conversation off with how you got into this space and started talking a little bit around a market dynamic that was very different. So sort of like the 2019, 2020 to 2021 timing. What what has changed since that timing or what happened during that timing and what has changed now? And then I'd love to like start to maybe start to understand Canada versus US. But before we do that, I, I think it'd be really interesting to understand what happened and what is the current state that we're in when we think about raising and, and financing. Sure. So very simply, what happened is interest rates went up, right? So if the cost of capital is going to go up as much as it has in the past 12, 13 months. I think in Canada, interest rates have gone up from memory 450 basis points in 12 months. That's going to change what we talked about you know, very early in this podcast, right? We talked about how the cost of capital impacts what is the risk-free rate of return? Well, if the risk-free rate of return, so, so again, in, in a basically zero interest rate environment, right? If venture capital as an asset class needs to return two to three times the risk-free rate, well, in a 0% interest rate environment or close to it, which is what we had about 13 months ago, vent capital is almost a commodity. Venture capital is a very attractive asset class when you're trying to return two to three times a risk-free rate that's around zero, right? With interest rates around zero. With interest rates now hovering where they are and, and looking like they're going to stay there for, for, for at least the foreseeable immediate future of the next six to 12 months, you know, the cost of capital has gone up. Uh, and that means that the risk-free rate has changed materially, right? And so the, the short answer here is interest rates have changed, the cost of capital has gone up, and that has meant that there's been a lot of stress on valuations, right, of companies that raised money near the tail end of very low interest rates. Now, does that mean that now startups need to produce higher outcomes for the money being invested? Does it mean that venture capitalists are being a little bit more deliberate with where and when they invest and looking for some things that are different? Or does it mean that maybe venture capitalists are okay to have slightly lower returns, but have different stability criteria that they're looking for or some mix of those? What, what are sort of the implications of that 
other than the fact that it's more expensive to borrow. So you're looking for a different type of return. But what are the implications of how that's manifesting in the ecosystem? Sure. So look, I think we've all seen the statistics in terms of you know, the last couple of quarters have been difficult, not just in Canada, but in the U.S. and, and you know, in, 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 in Europe and pretty much in any market that, that venture capital is, is, a, is an active asset class. It's been, a, it's been a, a realignment, a readjustment. I think VCs have really put a pause in a lot of ways on the volume of deal flow that we saw in 2020, 2021. A lot of startups really focused on cutting expenses, extending their runway. There are a lot of companies that have revenue, not quite product market fit. They're growing, but maybe not fast enough to grow into those frothy valuations that they raised at in, in say, 2021. So I think a lot of VCs have just focused on supporting their existing portfolio company. You read a lot about dry powder, accumulating dry powder, because the deal flow has really, the volume of deal flow has slowed down. Well, a lot of that quote unquote dry powder is being saved for existing portfolio companies to make sure that they're able to get a cash infusion if they need one in order to actually grow into the valuations that they raised at, at the sort of height of valuations in, in late 2021. Got it. So is dry powder sort of like a little bit of like a life raft or like a flotation device for existing investment companies that like, like invest existing companies that the firm has invested in that are on their way, but obviously because of dynamics since they've invested have changed to help them kind of get that little extra push. Is that sort of what that dry powder concept is? I, I think that's a reasonable way to characterize it for, for, for a lot of, a lot of the VC landscape. Absolutely. So you talked about Canada and the U S obviously we share a border. There's a lot of other things we share culturally, but Obviously, we differ in so many ways. When you think about venture capital, are we more similar, more different? What What is the difference between the two markets, Canada versus versus the U.S.? And how should be people that are Canadian-based founders, which is generally the people that listen to this podcast, what should they be thinking about or aware of that might be different if, if there is differences? Sure. So a couple of things. First of all, there are some amazing venture capital firms in Canada, right? Like we talked a little bit already about Golden Ventures, Panache, Anovia, Real Ventures, you know, too many to name. We have some really great investors in Canada. The problem is there's just not enough of them. We need more capital to support the amount of amazing entrepreneurial talent in this country. So the, that, that is the number one difference between Canada and the United States is the United States venture capital ecosystem is just, it's a bit older. It's a bit more mature and developed and advanced. And there's just more capital, more cap, not just more raw capital, but more capital on a per entrepreneur, call it basis. Um, in Canada, our venture capital ecosystem has uh, a handful of really great players, but we need more. We need double, we need triple. So number one difference, US ecosystem is just a lot bigger. Your options for financing are, are just a lot wider. And, you know, in the U.S., it's impossible to know every venture firm or fund that has a fund, say, bigger than $50 million. In Canada, you actually can know every venture fund over $50 million because they're just, you just have a smaller ecosystem. But I would argue that there's room in our ecosystem for a lot more capital because of the amount of talent in this country, the amount of entrepreneurs in this country, 
you know, I, I think it's really early innings in the development of the Canadian venture ecosystem and our startup ecosystem writ large. If you look at the deal flow, if you look at the amount of dollars invested in venture capital in Canada over the last decade, Toronto basically didn't have a tech ecosystem 15 years ago. Basically didn't have one. Now we have- that, like, that actually blows my mind. Yeah, as you mind- that stat, it, it's crazy to think 15 years ago that there wasn't a tech ecosystem. It's crazy. There, there was really, it was really niche. There was very little to speak of. Today, we have arguably the second largest tech ecosystem in the world outside of Silicon Valley. So wow. the chart, as it were, the chart is up and to the right, Mike, in, in Canada, in terms of the growth and development of our venture and startup ecosystem. And, and it's still early innings, right? So I'm really excited about the growth. We won't be sitting here complaining in five years that you know there's not, not enough sources of capital, but we need more. It's going to happen, it's coming. And it's coming because we have that network effect, that virtuous flywheel of you know people who had early exits from big companies like Shopify, who are now going on to start their own angel funds, right? That is happening. We are seeing it, but it's just a function of time. Uh, but it is still early innings. You know, I would say the correction that's taken place in the past, you know, twelve to sixteen months—that is going to be a blip on the chart that is up and to the right. It's a good point you bring up too around like success fuels success. So as we see more Canadian startups become successful, many people from them will come back and reinvest in the Canadian ecosystem Absolutely. as they go forward. Now, all of the venture funds that you've mentioned, are those Canadian entities? And obviously we love you know Canada, but are there areas where US firms are investing specifically in Canadian portfolios? Is that a thing? Absolutely. So there's a number of U.S. funds that invest both as funds of funds in Canadian venture funds and do direct investing into Canada. I, I'd, I'd encourage listeners to look at the CVCA, Canadian Venture Capital Association, annual report, which talks about the full landscape of American and foreign funds that do invest into Canadian startups, which is really exciting. And that's another chart that's, again, up and to the right. That number grows year over year, and I expect the last 18 months will just be a blip but that chart, again, will continue to be up and to the right because this is a growing, healthy ecosystem that's adding jobs year over year in tech and is, and is producing more great founders every single year. And I, and I am so lucky in my role that I get to see so many of them so frequently. The other difference, the number two big difference between Canada and the US is I think it always has, and this is partially a function of availability of capital, but it's partially, I think, a function of type of entrepreneur. And this goes back to something I said earlier about Jim Balsilli's comment about the Muskoka home run. It has always been more difficult to raise capital in Canada. And that is because I think Canadian invest investors have always focused a little bit more on unit economics, a little bit more on profitability, and less on, I think, what American investors have, have I think, always been a bit more interested in, which is that Uber for X model of growth at all costs, and we'll, we'll figure out the business model later. So I think in, in the context of the current downturn, that sort of small C conservatism, that extra caution that we see amongst, I think, Canadian investors and sometimes entrepreneurs has actually been a bit helpful to us. It's made the valuation correction a little bit less painful than it has mm -hmm. been in the US. Because again, can, you know, Canadian investors have always pushed startups here to focus more on unit economics from day one. 
and a pathway to profitability from day one and less less focus on growth at all costs, which again requires a lot of financing rounds. But again, those are two, th- two sides of the same coin, right? You're getting better protection in a down market, but you know, are we thinking big enough as an ecosystem to sort of hit that grand slam, to be venture backable to some of the bigger US firms, right? Are we thinking beyond the Muskoka home run? Well, and it sounds like based on what you're saying, as time goes on, we're going to see a lot more of that anyway, because you'll see more venture capital firms in the market. You'll see more money in the market. You'll see more innovation and more people going for that bigger piece. But obviously the ecosystem is is a little bit different. When we think of, say, say I'm an entrepreneur, I've listened, I've learned a ton right now, 45 minutes in or so. I now know what a safe is. I've got my eyes on the prize. I've got my FFF, friends, family, and fools investment. I'm ready to start talking pre-seed with angel investors and VCs. What are your tips for someone trying to raise in our current market? What are the things they need to be preparing? What do they need ready? Mm-hmm. And what are some some pro tips for anyone in that phase right now, whether it's you know, seed all the way up to series B, I'm sure it differs a little bit, but what are, what are some of the pro tips for what you're seeing right now? Sure. So I think at a, at a really high level, remember the North Star, right? Get into the mind of a VC. Are you telling a bigger, a big enough story to be a venture backable business? And if you're not, that's okay. You're building a lifestyle business, seek financing elsewhere, right? But if you want to be a venture backable business, you have to be able to convince a VC who have, again, these power law distribution imperatives as part of their fund that you are going to be a globally competitive billion dollar company and you're going to build it out of Canada. So be prepared to really believe that and, and to paint that picture. So that, that's number one. Number two, build a process for yourself. Seek warm introductions, right? It's, it's almost like job hunting, right? You want to seek warm introductions wherever you can. It's been statistically proven that people who get warm introductions via contact to a VC, you know, they're going to be looked at a little bit differently at the early intake and you know, they'll have a little bit more luck getting through the process of vetting and getting to due diligence and, and finally getting hopefully that handshake and a check. Number three, I, I really want to caution people in this environment, resist the urge to chase the latest zeitgeist. And when I say zeitgeist, I want to take you back to to 2018, 19, when, you know, blockchain was all the rage. And so you saw all these startups adding dot blockchain to the end of their name. I think there was even an iced tea company that was publicly traded, if I recall correctly, that they they named themselves Long Island Iced Tea dot blockchain or something crazy. And suddenly their valuation doubled overnight, right? Like, so, so what are the zeitgeists now? Well, obviously AI with the emergence of, of ChatGPT and BARD and all these LLMs. I would really encourage entrepreneurs, unless you have proprietary AI, right? Unless you have IP that's defensible, do not add .ai to the end of your company's name to try to juice the valuation, right? Do not just put a wrapper over ChatGPT with nothing proprietary under the hood and claim to be an AI company. Don't do that. You will, you will quickly be found out. And if you're not found out soon enough, you will not be able to grow into the valuation that you raise at if, if it was raised under the auspices of we had AI when, when you actually did. And then last tip I would say is take advantage of the current sort of down market, right? Like a lot of pressure follows a frothy valuation, right? If you raised in 2021 at a frothy valuation, 
at 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 a at an you know an enormous multiple, it's it's going to be tough to grow into. So take advantage right now of growing with a little bit less pressure on valuation, right? Take advantage. Focus on the business fundamentals. Focus on profitability. You know, great companies come out of downturns and recessions. They always do. And and the reason for that is actually very simple and rudimentary. When when the economy is 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 under pressure and, you know, the people that you would potentially sell to are sort of tightening the purse strings and cutting back on their spending, if they will still buy your product in a downturn, you know that your product has value. And that's why great companies come out of downturns and recessions. So take advantage of this time, right? You're really going to get a good customer stress test. I love it. So make sure your story is big enough if you are seeking venture funds. Have a process almost like job hunting to go out and seek introductions and opportunities to present what you're working on. Don't, I think you use the word zeitgeist. Don't, <laughs> Don't chase that that <laughs> mood of whatever is the current thing. So I, I, I've noted that. I'm not going to rename to pitch please.ai, although <laughs> it's very tempting. And then the last piece is take advantage of that that down market a little bit because if people are buying your product now, they truly do see the value. And as things come back to the upswing, that'll help hopefully drag you to the top a lot faster. Absolutely. Absolutely. If people want to learn more on venture capital and venture backing, are there like a couple one or two top places you think people should go? You mentioned, you know, a published report earlier. I don't know if that's where you would say to go, but what would be like your top one or two resources? And we'll link them. But but that people that want to learn more, where should they go? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm a big fan of a fellow by the name of Chris Newman. He is a GP at Panache Ventures. They're a Canadian venture capital firm. Chris puts out a regular newsletter that he cross publishes to his blog. So Chris Newman at Panache Ventures, uh, worth reading on a regular basis. I'm also a big fan of the book Venture Deals. It's by a VC in the U.S. named Brad Feld, and the, and there's a co-author as well whose name escapes me. But the book Venture Deals by Brad Feld, great resource. And if you're looking for uh, you know, a, a great media publication that covers Canadian venture deals, I su- I'd suggest BetaKit, which is an online publication that is that's been been operating for a number of years and and really has the pulse of the Canadian startup ecosystem. That's wicked. And we'll make sure if there's something specific from each, otherwise we'll just reference those in the show notes. But they sound like valuable resources. I know we talked a lot today about venture backing and how that works, but obviously 111 is a huge hub for this in Toronto. And so if people are wondering, are they at the right stage to work with 111? Should they apply? Should they have a conversation? Where or how should they find out more about that, Matt? Absolutely. So appreciate you letting me make a, a, a little a little plug at the end. So they should visit www.111, spelled out O-N-E-E-L-E-V-E-N.com. I love it. You're located right downtown Toronto. So if people are interested, come find me and we'll go walk over from the Microsoft office to the 111 office, a short five, six minute stroll. We can grab a coffee with Matthew and team. Any other closing thoughts on your side, Matthew? Otherwise, you know, I really want to thank you for your time today. This has been super educational for me. I'm sure a lot of people are going to find it useful, but any closing thoughts on your side? Yeah. Last thought is if you're, if you've ever thought about starting a company, now is a great time to so I highly encourage you to, 
to take advantage and, and, and to don't wait, start something today, start it off the side of your desk, start small, iterate, and just, just launch, right? Bring something, bring an idea to life. Don't, don't wait, don't put it off a day longer. It's a hell of a mic drop. I love it. Thanks a lot, Matthew, Managing Director at 111 from downtown Toronto here in Canada. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to the Pitch Please Podcast. Pitch Please. Pitch Please. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Tune in for regular episodes and show notes at pitchplease.ca. And make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform. Pitch Please, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Michael Thibodeau and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Pitch Please content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.